0: In this episode of Your Double Podcast, we are speaking to Dr. Jennifer Jill Harmon, who is an Associate Professor of Psychology at Colorado State University. Before that, she also served as a Family and Substance Abuse Counselor for several years. Dr. Harmon's areas of research expertise focus on the topic of power in relationships, power in how intimate partners influence each other for good or bad. For the past decade, her primary focus has been on the study of parental alienation. Dr. Harmon is also an accomplished and awarded teacher and she has published many peer-reviewed articles and book chapters and has presented her research regularly at scientific conferences around the world. Books that she has co-authored include The Science of Relationships and also Parents Acting Badly. Dr. Aman is also a mother of two amazing boys and a stepmother in a blended family of seven. So, without further ado, let's get into the
1: episode.
0: First of all, thank you, Dr. Hammond, for taking the time to be in this podcast. I think you are one of the top minds in the field of parental alienation and domestic abuse. I am thoroughly impressed with your TEDx talk, and I've personally forwarded that to many who ask me more about the issue. So thank you for all the work that you have been doing in this field. We appreciate it.
1: (laughs) Well, thanks. I've been relatively, well, not relatively, I've been doing this now almost 10 years, but I'm relatively new compared to, like, uh, yeah, Dr. Baker and Dr. Burnett and who've been and Dr. Warshock have been publishing on this longer than I have. But, but I'm, you know, I've I've been kind of this has been my full time kind of focus right now. So, for several years now. So,
0: from what I know, parental alienation is one of the least funded branch of research compared to other topics within uh, domestic abuse. In fact, it's one of the most opposed fields within domestic abuse for various reasons. So can you explain a bit about your motivation behind going into parental alienation, as I know it's obviously not for the money or the popularity?
1: Right. I'm asked that question a lot because, yeah, it's not an easy topic to study. And in fact, I think it's probably one of the worst forms of abuse. Um, and everyone I know who works in this field feels the same way you know for example I've talked to clinicians who say that they they weren't personally affected by it but they were seeing children in their clinics I mean it was like their soul has been ripped out of them when they've been alienated so badly um, and so I came to it a bit different you know most of my research since god since I grad, since I was in graduate school back in 2000 20 years ago is focused focus on intimate relationships and I've studied power and relationships and influence, uh, and focused a little bit on domestic violence, um, mostly because it's something that has affected me as well. Um, you know, and I've had to deal with pretty, pretty severe domestic violence personally. Um, and then I saw as I got older, you know, I, I still did a lot of research looking at intimate relationships and whatnot. And then people close to me, I, I saw them kind of experiencing issues with their children and their exes when they were getting divorced. And then, you know, I, I also saw that with my, my current husband, when we started dating, I came to learn he'd been experiencing um, a lot of interference with his children. Um, His ex-wife was trying to essentially, she was making lots of allegations of abuse and turning the children against us and then she turned them everybody against me as well. Um, and I, I was shocked by this because I didn't I've studied intimate relationships and I, I'm a scientist and I've been, you know, I present work in, in in the field of you know intimate relationships for a long time, and I didn't even when I came across what it was called, I had never even heard of it before, which I thought was very odd coming from a scientific community that this is something that was not even mentioned in any articles that I ever read. It doesn't appear in any chapters written by my colleagues. Even my colleagues who've been studying really, um, parental, or studying intimate relationships and families for a long time didn't even know what it was. And so that's what kind of inspired me to try to learn more about it. Initially, it was more just to kind of get a grasp about what it was I was dealing with um, and what others around me were dealing with. Because when I started learning more about it, I started seeing that it was a lot more common than previously thought. And I noticed there were a lot of parallels with parental alienating behaviors and other kinds of domestic violence, which is something that I had experienced. And sure enough, I mean, they're the same behaviors. Um, We just call it something different in the field of parental alienation, but it's the same behaviors that we're describing. We're describing an abusive person who's using their child against the other parent. The child is a weapon. Um, domestic violence researchers have been studying this for a long time. They just don't call it the same thing, but we're studying the same exact behaviors. And so that that's where I was really inspired and I was really interested about why is there so much resistance to even acknowledging parental alienation? Why, you know, what what were the politics behind it? And so that's really what kind of inspired me to really study this more, not from a personal for reasons, but because I saw that it was affecting so many people and the damage to families when we don't acknowledge it and don't understand it is substantial. And so I've kind of changed my entire research focus to look at that.
0: When we talk about domestic abuse, everyone just seems to understand what is it. But if we speak about parental alienation, more often than not, people have never heard of that particular phrase. When we did the uh, work to translate our content to different languages, we realized that this phrase doesn't even exist in many languages. This shows us that there is a definite gap in knowledge when it comes to parental alienation. Do you know why this gap exists?
1: Well, I mean, parental alienation is domestic abuse. It's family abuse. It's just sort of a new term when we're describing the impact of that abuse on children, right? It's been, even though parental alienating behaviors and the outcomes have been documented a long time, even in the in the legal field, as well as in the clinical field, it didn't even have a name until 1985, right? And that, that's when it, a label was made for it, which was necessary in order to try to study it. You know, so as somebody who studies something, you need to have good definitions, right, in, in order to say, what are we studying and how is it different than other things? Uh, and it takes a while because when you're studying something that practitioners and professionals and parents are describing, it takes a while for the science to catch up, right? <laughs> um, and that's that's not unique to parental alienation. That's, that's the case in any scientific field. And so we have now gotten to this point where there's about 25 years of research on parental alienation. And I published a paper a few years ago, or about a year, and two years ago, where we kind of acknowledged that it's sort of become sort of a blossoming of the field, meaning that we understand now what it is and what it's not. We understand there's theoretical developments happening So it's no wonder that most people, like kind of in the general population, don't quite know the names for it yet. But when you describe to them what alienation is just using the behaviors and the descriptions of, you know, how the children react, then people just say, yeah, I know a lot of people who have that problem. They just don't know the name of it yet. Um, And then there's just a lot of also, I think there's, well, I know there's just a lot of folks who want to say that... um, Alienation isn't real, or it's just something made up as a legal defense to fight off against allegations of abuse, um which is blatantly untrue. Um, and so there's there's a lot of folks like advocates who who like to argue that children never lie about abuse or that mothers never lie about abuse. Um, and it there's a it's because there's a societal kind of belief that, Mothers are, or women are always victims of aggression and are not aggressive themselves. There's also a belief that mothers know best and whenever mothers use aggression, there must be a reason for it. There must be a justified reason for it because women don't usually use aggression, even though the aggression research out there does not support that belief. <laughs> the aggression research out there shows that women are just as abusive as men. They maybe don't do as much, <laughs> they don't do as much damage, but they do aggression differently. They're motivated to harm just like men are motivated for different reasons. I mean, so, but there's, but it, it's tied to a lot of societal beliefs that try to um, and, and people who adhere to those beliefs who try to suppress research that goes against them, that, those beliefs. And they're very good at orchestrating campaigns and arguments out in social media and other things to try to discredit anybody who does research that goes against that. And so then I think the population reads that or sees it on social media and says, oh well, parental alienation is not scientific, which is completely baseless. Yeah, I mean, I mean we have like 25 years of research. I mean and I'm writing up a review paper right now. we know a lot about parental alienation and what, you know, like what's been associated with it. A lot of people say, well, how do you know what actually causes it? I mean, the only way you can show causation in science is by experimentation. And you can't experiment on kids. <laughs> you can't say, well, we're going to put you with this family where you're going to be alienated and you with this family where you're not. You can't do that. But what we can do is look at families over time. And you can look at if you study this, you know, families and compare them to other families where alienation hasn't happened, you start to see patterns. And those patterns over time, when you see them in different countries and different studies at different labs and different researchers, and they start to show the same pattern over and over again, well, then maybe it's not causation, but it's pretty close. <laughs> it's, it's a very strong association. And we know a lot about that right now. Um, every And every year, I mean, I, I'm, I'm writing up a paper right now where we surveyed the research literature. And 35% of the papers that have been published that have data have been published um, in, within the last four years. So the research on this is just exploding. Um, And not just in the US, it's exploding. I mean, the most recent paper I looked at that was published the last day of the year, last year was out of Romania. I mean, and so there's lots of great research that's coming out all over. And so I think eventually more people will know
0: about it. (laughs) Another massive issue that I encounter when I read about parental alienation, especially parental alienation syndrome or disorder is that all of the research is considered just a junk science or pseudoscience. They cite that there is no credible scientific evidence or the fact that it hasn't gained uh, any general acceptance from the scientific, medical, or legal fields as an indicator that it's not real. More often than not, I see a lot of feminists saying this. So what are your opinions on this particular matter?
1: Well... It's tied to beliefs that people have, and this isn't unique to parental alienation. This is something that we see in domestic violence research. This is something we see in research on shared parenting. This is, you know, and so parental alienation is just one of the other forms of, um, or places where this is happening, where there's just beliefs that women are not proactive aggressors, right? And that they only respond to, with aggression when it's justified you know meaning like if there's an abusive father then mothers have a justified reason to protect the child from that parent and true while there's an ab- you could have an abusive parent and you should always protect children from abuse no matter who the abuser is um But then that wouldn't be a case of alienation. (laughs) I mean, what what kind of gets lost in that argument is that parental alienation would never be diagnosed if there was actual abuse going on in that family. So, because parental alienation refers to when a child is rejecting a a parent who's the healthy parent for reasons that are not justifiable or grossly exaggerated, um, which means that the person who's most like typically the cause is the other parent who's the abuser. Uh, And so there's, I think there's just a lot of misunderstandings about parental alienation and the people who are trying to suppress the, what we know about it, either they, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know what their motives are entirely, but (laughs) I can only guess. Um, But I think, you know, I've heard some of my colleagues say that they're just protecting other abusers. You know, they're protecting the parents who are alienators. The alienators are the ones who are the abusive parents, regardless of whether you want to call them alienators or you want to call them batterers, whether you want to call whatever (laughs) name, whatever name you want to give them. And I don't find gender differences in who those people are. In fact, most of the research out there, they, they very rarely find gender differences unless you're looking at when it gets to like higher levels of court. Like appellate levels and things, that's where you see the gender differences break out, and you see more fathers who are victims. But it doesn't necessarily mean that fathers are more likely to be the victims of parental alienation. It just means that maybe they had more money to fight it in court. Right? <laughs> that's what that means, because that's a sample issue. Whereas I, I do research on general populations, and I don't find gender differences. So it's and that 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 resembles and reflects other kinds of violence in society you know, in the US, you know, that each year they do, you know, domestic violence surveys. And we find that men and women are victims of domestic violence, meaning stalking, sex abuse, you know, physical battery to almost the same proportions every year. It's like five and a half percent. And that's for moms, you know, men and women. So this argument that, (laughs) that it's, just a gender thing. I mean, it's not to say that that doesn't exist. There sure are lots of cases where there, you know, women, you know, are victims of battery. But there's lots of cases where men are victimized too. Um, and there's not as many resources for men. So I don't know what the motives are. I, I, you know, a lot of my colleagues think there's money behind it. I, I don't know. You know,
0: I actually think that the resistance towards parental alienation is actually majorly fueled by corrupt lawyers and those who benefit financially from it. For example, in Japan, the lawyers and the local city council gain a percentage of the alimony paid by the parent till the child is about 21 years old. Because of that, these divorce lawyers have the need to suppress the research and the advancement in parental alienation. So I do agree with your colleague here. Yeah, there's so many, there's so many, and
1: yeah, each country's got its own, you know, even like countries like Germany, which I've always assumed be very progressive. They have a very similar, <laughs> they have a very similar issue, you know, custody kind of automatically goes to the mother, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, and, and I was just elected president of the International Council on Shared Parenting. Um, we haven't put a press release out yet, but. Um, oh, what, congrats. Oh, thanks. Yeah, one of my goals um, as president is to expand membership because um, we had a conference in December and the theme of the conference, interestingly enough, was um, the intersection of shared parenting and family violence. And we wanted to have a very frank discussion with many different perspectives. You know, we, And we invited people of very different opinions to come and give talks because we wanted to try to find some common ground. You know, because I think we all share a, a goal of protecting children from abuse, <laughs> no matter what the abuse is. We all want healthy families. Um, and so how can we make that happen? How can we ensure that the children, even if they are abused, you know, it's it's not like the abusive parent is a, the devil. I mean, you know, there's ways to have them still have a relationship and protect the child. Right. Um, and the parent can get help. And get get the things that they need so that they can be a better parent and a better influence on the child. And and so we all have that as a goal. And we invited as many speakers as we could to that conference. And it was interesting to me how some of the speakers responded or some of the people that we approached responded. Um, some didn't respond at all. Um. And it wasn't even that we had released our keynote speaker list yet. I mean, we were trying to bring in a lot of different perspectives, but just the topic alone, they didn't even want to come to the table. And then when we we let people know, like, hey, here's our, our invited speakers, and we also accepted papers that other people submitted. And But then some people, when they saw the list, they backed out and said, you know... <laughs> if you don't take me off your list, I'm going to, you know, sue you or something, you know, it was ridiculous. I mean, it's just like, they didn't want to, you know, how can we come to some sort of like shared vision and goal to help families if people won't even come to the table and they want to maintain this worldview that it doesn't include alienation and doesn't include all this stuff. And it, you know, it's just, it's appalling to me that the behavior of, people who are working in this field to not even show up and come to the table. Um, and so my goal was, and we had, but what was amazing is we had we had great speakers. We did end up getting some diverse opinions and I thought it was great. Um, I didn't always agree with the opinions, but that's not the point, right? <laughs> the point is to understand, okay, this is this person's perspective. What What, is, what are everybody's concerns here and how can we work together um, and I feel like that was accomplished. We had over a thousand people attend the conference virtually and many there were many from countries like Bangladesh and Iran, Colombia, um, some of the Slavic countries, um, Brazil. It was amazing how many people we had from all over the world. And so my one of my goals as president is to reach out um, and promote um, membership and hopefully people will join us um, from those countries, because I want to learn more about what are the unique challenges of trying to change policies about access to children and other things after divorce. And um, and so that's that's one of the strategies I'm working on um, as president. So hopefully, if any of your members want to join, just
0: <laughs> please look into it. <laughs> For sure. I will definitely include the links in the show notes so that our listeners can reach out to you if they are interested. Something else that you touched on just now is the fact that most women's support groups are against any movement for parental alienation as they view it as something that undermines their domestic abuse situation. On top of that, many courts around the world automatically... Uh, defaults to the mom as the prime caretaker when it comes to divorces, irregardless of uh, who's the abuser and who's the most able one in the uh, relationship and so on. What is your opinion on this? Right.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, you know, even when I reflect on kind of like, you know, now now that I I do a lot of research on this topic and the people who've been trying to suppress and kind of ignore the research that we're doing, on alienation and other things, it's, you know, constantly accused of not being a feminist, even though I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm accused of, you know, gender bashing and hating women, and which I'm like, what? You know, like, it, it's just, is shocking to me how, you know, cause I don't, I don't think that, you know, I, I don't, well, I, I don't think there's any way of winning over the minds of people who are in just stark opposition, Um, But what we need to do is find the common ground of people who aren't on the radical ends of things, (laughs) you know, people who are open minded and, you know, want to really kind of make evidence based practice, evidence based policies, um, not policies and laws and things based on legal opinions and other things that, you know, a lot of the people who believe that alienation isn't scientific or whatever, all they do is cite each other, and they in their research—it's not even research—in their papers that they publish, they cite each other, and they don't cite evidence. <laughs> they ignore all the research. They don't cite anybody who does any research, and they just cite other lawyers. Um, and it makes it appear like, oh look, there's all these publications that saying parental alienation isn't a thing or it's not real. <laughs> And it's 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 um, when you actually dig deeper and look at who people are citing in support of their arguments, it's actually just mind-boggling. It's, it's oh my gosh, it, it's 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 scary because it makes me worried about scientific literacy and you know misuse of science and misuse of um, you know the social media to to mislead people. You know so.
0: What yeah. you're saying reminds me of the uh, flat earth supporters. They tend to do the same. They just quote each other. And then now we have a full group of people who believe that the world is flat.
1: It's so funny you mentioned that because the paper that I just published um, in December, um, I co-authored a paper with Dr. Demosthenes Lorandos, where we tackled um, a paper that was published by Joan Meyer and her colleagues Um it wasn't, it was published in the law journal. Um, she had received some funding to try to look at um, custody decisions where there's allegations of abuse and parental alienation. And this report that she published has been used all over to change law because she's claiming that the, her results prove that alienation is a claim that dads are making who are abusive and they're getting custody of their kids.
0: Yeah, that is super misleading. Honestly, it's just a plain lie. Yeah, that's
1: that was that's her claim. And so <laughs> so I looked at that and I was like cuz and then, you know, and you could look at her paper and go if you're not a scientist, you could look at it and go, "Huh, you know, like maybe she's right. That's really concerning." But as I looked at it, I mean there were a lot of Red flags in, in terms of how the study was described and what they did, and so I approached Dr. Lorandos and I said, Hey, you know I, have you read this? This is just you know I don't even i mean if if it's true, this is horrible, you know, we've got to do something about it, but you don't want to go and change laws on one study ever. you need to replicate that's the basis of science, right? You need to replicate studies, you need to um to show that the effect is still there using different methods, different labs, you know, to try to minimize bias. Um, but when I was reading her paper, I mean, we we identified 30 major methodological and statistical issues. Like, I don't even know the the models that they used when they analyzed their data. There were a lot of issues, you know, in terms of the hypotheses. They weren't specified. Um, how they coded the articles wasn't available, like, for a year after the paper was published. Um, it, there were a lot of issues with it. And we emailed her and asked her for the materials, one of our members of our research team, and uh, she didn't give it to us. Um, and we have documented all the emails. So all of our, we ended up re- trying to rebuild our study based on what they reported, which wasn't a lot of information. Um, and then we, we identified what they did. We identified the flaws we We created a a new study that remedied the flaws, right, so that we could actually do a good test of the hypotheses that and our hypotheses weren't their hypotheses because they didn't really have hypotheses. <laughs> they just reported a bunch of findings. so we we just created hypotheses based on their findings. Uh, and we ran the study. we published it last in, in December, it was published. And um, we didn't find any support for any of the findings that they had. Um, And, but since doing that, we've been facing so much backlash. (laughs) I mean, just because we challenged, and it wasn't an ad hominem attack against her and her team. It was a critical look at what they did, which you do in science all the time. You have to have a thick skin to do science. You have to be able to, you know, defend why you make different decisions in your research. Um, we use all open science practices. So if you go onto open science framework, you can see everything we did in that study. You can see that we pre-registered our hypotheses ahead of time, meaning that we uploaded all our methods, our hypotheses, and we date stamped it you know embargoed it before we even did the study.
0: That way you can't go back and change the hypothesis of the study based on the results meaning that uh, you are not working backwards. Yeah, we're not changing
1: it to fit our our results which we we question whether or not Joan Meyer's team did that. Now I don't know if they did because they didn't pre-register it. So, you know, they could, they could have, they could have not, but it was never specified in their their study about what they were planning on doing. So, but now we're we're being attacked, you know, of course, you know, we're being accused of unprofessionally attacking her, even though I don't know how you, you know, if you publish a paper in a peer-reviewed journal that, you know, is critical of your research, I don't know how much more professional you can get. (laughs) I mean, you know, anyway, but, and and what's sad is like the response that we've gotten doesn't even address the problems that we raised with the study. All, the response right. that we've gotten is just attacking us and essentially saying that we looked at something different and, you know, trying to kind of justify the validity of their paper without addressing the the problems that we cited with the paper. Like none of that is addressed in any of the responses I've seen. And so it's it's very disturbing. And this is, gets me to the point about feeling like the flat earth, uh, my, my co-author and I kind of laugh about that. It's like, we feel like we're Copernicus. Hey, the, the world does not revolve around, but the universe does not revolve around us. It revolves around the sun, right? And, or, or yeah, or the world is not flat, right? You know, it's round. I mean, and so if you think about when, when he was making those statements, you had a religious kind of group who had a set of beliefs that the world was a certain way. They hired people to investigate what's the truth you know like what you know like let's let's come up with our our own independent you know investigation into this even though they're hired by the religious organization to do that and then they come out against Copernicus right and then Galileo comes along and goes to jail you know yeah exactly (laughs) you know and and that's you know I hate to be you know equate myself to them because they're you know obviously but but it feels like that because it it feels like there's just this defense um, that that there's just like a lot of people who just do not want to see what, what the evidence is showing. <laughs> you know, like they're just like blinders are on or something. I, I don't know.
0: This reminds me of the oil and tobacco industry. Uh, some time back, they paid the researchers and PR companies to make sure that the research is positive when it comes to their products. I believe they spent billions uh, doing this, and many researchers reported falsified study results because they were working backwards from the results that these tobacco companies wanted.
1: My co-author is the same thing. Like he's calling, like, I mean, he, he's calling it what it is, and that's this cargo cult science. It's yeah, and and they they're the same people who who say, Yeah, smoking's not bad for you. And then when, you know, and they were hiring, tobacco companies were hiring people to do their research, right? (laughs) To show it is, it actually, and then later scientists caught on and said, no, it actually is bad for you. But yeah, that took decades,
0: right? Exactly. When it comes to things like smoking or even the environmental impact from burning oil and fuel, it takes decades to prove a correlation as we have to wait for the cancer to develop. It's also super costly to run a research for decades as we need to continuously incentivize the participants to be involved in the study for years and years to come. I think this is the same for parental alienation as well because we also need to wait for decades to find the long-term effect of parental alienation on the children.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, and there's, like, you know, there's not funding for that right now. Um, You know, I wish. I wish there was funding, but, I mean, you know... Obviously, Joan Meyer and her team got funding, um, but what's interesting is in their application to the National Institute of Justice, they say that parental alienation is a, quote, pseudoscientific theory with no supporting documentation or anything, and they accepted that at face value. So I think there's a real problem with even the funding <laughs> agencies, and I don't know who has reviewed that grant, but it's pretty... Uh, sad that they accepted that at face value without actually even understanding the literature.
0: So, Totally. In light of all these people who are trying to sideline the very existence of parental alienation and the effects of it on the children, how can we prove to someone that parental alienation is a real thing? How can we explain to others who have no idea about the issue to make sure that they get that it's a real issue?
1: Well, I think what, what, what is useful to make it
0: kind of clear to people is
1: some like real life, like, pop, like uh, famous examples of uh, to illustrate, I guess, how children who are abused in other ways don't reject their abuser the same way that you see alienated children reject the alienated parent. Amy Baker's published, Dr. Amy Baker's published a few really key papers on this where she, um, in one study, she looked at children who were in foster care who had been experienced, you know, they're in foster care because they've experienced a lot of serious abuse from their birth parents, right? And these children don't express strong hatred towards those parents. They long for them and they minimize the abuse that they experienced. Um, she did another study where she surveyed um, child protection workers who were working with really severely abused children and asked them to rate from their caseload how, what kinds of behaviors these, parent, these, these children did towards their birth parents. And what she found is that the majority of the children that were severely abused engaged in behaviors that were designed to enhance the relationship with their abusers, not push them away and reject them. In other research, you know, or you could take personally or like real life examples where you have, um, like if you've seen um, that show um, Finding Neverland or Leaving Neverland with uh, Michael Jackson, you know, think about those adults who were allegedly abused by him and how much they denied it. Until they had their own children, and how much they defended him, they didn't see that it was abuse. Because when people are being abused, whether it's a victim of domestic violence or child abuse, nobody sees themselves as a victim. You know, even you know, even if it's you know, and I've been a victim of domestic violence, and it's hard to see when you're in a very violent or, or you know emotionally psychologically abusive relationship. It's hard to see it until you get some distance from it, and. And that's the case here. You know, we, we don't see, you know, it's just, it's with alienated children, the amount of hatred and rejection they have for a parent doesn't match what we often see with children who are abused in other ways. And so that's where it seems very counterintuitive to people. But then when you start to explain, you know, that's, so that's how I, I kind of start. Usually I say, if this child was really abused by this person, <laughs> then they would feel very ambivalent towards them, right? They would res- they would want to resist seeing them, but they would still long for them, you know, because even abusive people, they're not abusive 24 seven, right, <laughs> usually, I mean, some I'm sure there's some that are, but, but, you know, usually even with domestic violence, there's, you know, times when people make up and they're gonna do better, right, and everything's gonna be great in the honeymoon phase, and then it goes horrible again. Um, And that's, you know, children are wanting just to be loved by their parents. And so, and kids blame themselves. You know, kids are very egocentric because that's just how they are developmentally. So they blame themselves. They blame themselves for the parents' separation and divorce. Um, No matter how great, no matter how much the parents tell them that it's not their fault, on some level, kids still feel like they're, they're responsible for that. If a parent leaves, the kid feels like, I must have done something to make that parent go, right? And when you have another parent that fuels that and and encourages those feelings, and makes the child feel like they've been abandoned um, or doesn't correct those beliefs, that's where it becomes abusive. And then the child starts to feel very um, alone and angry at the other parent for leaving. Right. And they blame themselves for it. Um, they think I'm not lovable because why would mom or dad leave? Right. Um, and so then that's when you start to see the seeds of alienation take place when the alienating parent kind of doesn't stop them. And they encourage it. So so sometimes I think when you explain the process, then it's the counterintuitive piece of it about, you know, and, and, and then you start to understand from that child's perspective why they start to feel that way about the parent and why they start to hate them so badly, then it starts to, I think, make sense to people.
0: Yeah, what you're saying, just reminding me of the uh, Stockholm Syndrome, where the people who get kidnapped start to develop affection to the kidnapper. I think it's a pretty similar situation here. Yeah, a lot of... Yeah,
1: in fact, yeah, Amy Baker, she's written about this, you know, it's like a cult, right? You know, there's very cultish-type behaviors that parents... Use, Um, yeah. uh, Dr. Lorando's just emailed me today a a paper or a a two two part article that was just published, um, looking at the um, what was it? The um, there's a college um, where there was a a very charismatic kind of cult like father who moved into a um, a college dorm or like a a place where a lot of young women were were living. And um, yeah, he essentially kind of turned the kids and, and alienated them against their whole families. Um, I forgot the name of the college, but it's a really high profile case. And <coughs> But it's interesting because it's like the dynamics are exactly the same that you see. That's just a father figure. It's not the actual other parent, but the alienation is just as, <laughs> it's the same process. It's the same behaviors that turn the children against the other parents,
0: you know, as someone who have researched these topics for more than a decade, I'm interested to know if there's something that shocked you when you realized, or anything that you realized you were wrong about, which you later learned through your research. Um, well, yeah, I mean, usually, you know, what inspires my next
1: research project is something I go, geez, that's weird, right? <laughs> or like, <laughs> why is that happening? Yeah, I think one of the first ones that came out to me is, you know, I kept seeing over and over, this is child abuse, this is child abuse, this is child abuse, and while it is, you know, it does meet that definition um, when it gets, especially when, you know, in moderate and more severe stages of child, of parental alienation. Um, it's, you know, I, I was at the same time, I was like, you know, there's so many other behaviors that don't even involve the child that affect the parent, right? You know, and sometimes the children aren't even aware of what's going on in the background. You know, all the aggression, like the stalking and you know, stuff that I was seeing and other people were seeing. And I did some initial interviews with parents. I interviewed about 90 parents from around the world and they were all describing the same experience. And so what shocked, me, what really struck out to me is that's where I was like, this is domestic violence, you know, because it was what they were describing is what I live through, you know, and, you know, and I was like, as you know, not with my children, but, but other relationship. And, and I was like, this is, and then the more I talked to, especially to fathers, they didn't want to see it that way because a lot of, there's a lot of stigma about men being victims of domestic violence and they don't want to admit it um, for a lot of reasons. And I remember one day I was, I was in Iceland giving a talk with um, my colleague, uh, Edward Crook, uh, Dr. doctor Crook. And um, he and I published a paper about two years ago, where we talk about parental alienation as family violence. and, when we first started working in the paper, he's just like, No, I'll just work on the child abuse section. And and he didn't kind of really buy the domestic violence piece of it. But then after I gave my talk in Iceland, even after we were writing our paper, he's like, Oh my God, I just realized in the audience that you're right. This is domestic violence. Like he didn't want to see it. And um, we joke about that kind of now. And and my husband, the same thing. He's like, I don't want to admit that I'm, you know, a victim of domestic violence. And so then we start. That, so that was the first thing that kind of struck, stuck out to me, that we've been kind of thinking about this the wrong, not not the wrong way, but in a limited way. And so that's why I said, you know, we need to expand our understanding of this because there's no way we're going to understand how to address the problem unless we get a better sense about what kind of uh, behaviors people are doing and, and why, you know. Um, I think the the thing that's sticking out to me more recently is... Kind of this idea that, or it's striking to me how there's a constant portrayal that alienation, for the people who don't deny alienation, but they constantly say it's not very common. Or they say that most cases are hybrids where both people are doing it, which is an odd thing to recommend or say, given that, you know, when people are in relationships and they're experiencing domestic violence, there's a lot of, you know, families or parents or people who experience coercive controlling violence, right? You know, this would be like the batterers, right? And let's say they have children together and then they divorce. And then to say that most parents then are equally responsible, that's like saying that you know all of a sudden after divorce, you're just gonna to start to co-parent really well with this person. <laughs> like, you know, there's a lot of people who are victims of that kind of violence. It doesn't make sense then that the minute they get divorced that they're just as responsible for their kids', you know, dislike of them. Like, how did the numbers work out where that's even possible? Right. So I, I think that that's kind of a weird position. I mean, I mean, there are cases definitely where there's hybrids and where you, know, you have both people doing things and, and no parent's perfect. And If you're the victim of um, battery or the victim of parental alienation, severe forms of it, it's very traumatic for parents. And so they're not always gonna engage in the best way. The problem is then that gets turned around and used against them to say that they're responsible for their kid's rejection. When it's not stepping back and saying, how did it come to be this way? Um, you know, a lot of times the victims of battery and other types of, you know, really severe domestic violence don't present well in court. They look like a mess because, you know, they're, they've been abused, right? You know, and, and same thing with a lot of targeted parents. They look like, I mean, it's a war, like you look like you've been through a war because you're constantly defending yourself and, and you lose your mind because you, you have so much loss for your child. And yet then that's used against them to say that the kid's justified in their rejection of them. So that's really what sticks out to me is just this. And I understand why lawyers do it because they're protecting their clients, but I don't know if they know that they're protecting an abusive person or they're just fine with that. (laughs) I don't know, but I'm not going to try to get into the minds of the attorneys, but, um, but I think that, you know, we need to know better. Um, We need more research on sort of how these families after they divorce or right before divorce and after how things kind of change and how professionals start to view um, their role in the the violence that's going on. Because it seems like they're going from, oh, yes, you're a victim of battery. And then when a couple of years later, when they don't see their kids anymore, they then blame them for being just as responsible.
0: Yeah, what you are saying might sound super counterintuitive, but it is what's happening when we see the reality of the situation. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, and I, I understand that, you know, there's kind of a, a you know, there's, there is a belief that it takes two to tango, and sure, it does take two to kind of communicate, but in a lot of alienation cases, there's actually very little contact between the targeted parent and the alienator, Um Some, there's a lot of conflict and going back and forth. But, you know, usually the, you know, the, in a lot of the research I've I've done and I've seen other people do, the targeted parent or the alienated parent has very little influence. They have very little power. Um, They feel powerless. They report feeling like there's nothing they can do or say to change anything. And so I find it odd that then they would be seen as just as responsible for things when they have no power. (laughs) You know, they have no power to do anything. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I think that's probably one of the most striking features for me that kind of drives a lot of my research questions.
0: Now, I've had seen many reports that talk about the long-term effects of parental alienation on children. In your opinion, what are the definite effects that you have seen based on your study? Is there any that have been proven so far?
1: We're starting to. um, I mean, so there, there have been a number of publications that they've documented that um, there's mental health issues, um, conflicting evidence on impact on grades in school. You know, sometimes it says it's really bad impact on children's grades and they're going to college or not, but other studies show that the kids actually excel because some kids, because they, compartmentalize you know like that that's the way that they cope you know with the loss <laughs> um <laughs> but um cuz you know some kids you know especially depending on the age you know they can but yeah there is a lot of stuff on externalizing behaviors like you know you know ADHD and other types of things that kids start to develop um there was an interesting study i read it was a dissertation i just read it yesterday's the um one 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 study. This is only one study, but they were looking at how externalizing behaviors for some kids actually protected them from alienation because they were like kind of like acting out as a way to deflect the loss, or you know they weren't feeling the it 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 you know they thought maybe it helped the some kids. <laughs> That's why this. I mean, most of the bad behaviors that kids are doing are ways to try to cope, right? And so they're not doing it just to be bad kids so <laughs> they're doing it because they're they're in pain right and so um so but, so but we are learning more and more I mean the hard part is yeah you have to track these folks over time studying studying alienated children is really difficult because when they're younger they're with the alienator and they'll never identify as alienated and the alienator will never admit that they are the alienator they will assume that they're completely justified in what they're doing they don't think that they're doing anything wrong. They think they're just protecting their kids. Um, and so you can't identify these folks, right? You know, how do you study them? You know, it's, it's really hard. Um, and then you've got when they're adults, you know, if they come to the realization that they've been alienated, not will ever do. Or they don't realize it until they have their own kids and then they're alienated from their own kids. Um, I get lots of emails of parents like that where they they come, they're alienated from their kids and then they realize that they had been alienated too. So that's like a double grief that they have to deal with, you know, um, because it is generationally transmitted. We know that. Um, so it's, you know, I I yeah, I mean, we know a little bit. Um, you know, um, uh, Dr. Varecchio and you know Amy Baker, they've published a few papers recently uh looking at the long-term effects on um adults who were alienated as children and compared their outcomes to those who hadn't been alienated. Um, and they they do show like more depression, more anxiety, um, more trauma kind of symptoms. Um, I find the same thing for the adults who've been alienated, um, parents who've been alienated from their children or have some very negative consequences. <laughs> um, you know, my paper in 2019, we found that, you know, for parents who were moderately to severely alienated from their children, almost half had thought of suicide in the last year. Um, uh, in Mandy Mathewson's research team, they've published a few papers looking at, they found suicidality as well. And in fact, 23% of one of their sample had attempted suicide in the last couple months. So it's, it's very negative consequences for the parents who are grieving. I think the hardest part is when the adults, the children come to realize that they've been alienated. Then there is like a, it's, it's a grief process too, to kind of grieve the loss of a relationship when there didn't need to be a loss of a relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and guilt um, of playing a role in that um, without knowing why. Right. You know, cause a lot of times the kids are aligned and they, they act on behalf of the alienator. Um so there's a lot of feelings about that when they get older. Um, there's a great book, you know, Amy Baker's book, um, Breaking the Ties That Bind. Yeah, she interviewed a lot of it, you know. So I think that's a great book to really illustrate when these, you know, adults reflect back to what it was like. Um, I think that kind of really powerfully depicts the impact that it has. Um but we do need more research on it, um, on the impact. Um, but that requires, I think, the kind of funding that we that we could dedicate to other kinds of child abuse. Um, we, de- we definitely throw a lot of money at other kinds, other studies, you know, related to child abuse. But hopefully, maybe our funding agencies will say, we need to look at this
0: kind of child abuse. Talking about child abuse, one of the common things that the parental alienation deniers usually say is that, Parental alienation syndrome was removed from DSM-5 because it's not a real thing. They use it as a way to disregard the effects of it. So, what do you think is your reply to those people who say that?
1: The DSM doesn't have battered wife syndrome in it either. And yet, that's something that people experience, right? Um, and the when children are severely alienated, it does meet the definition of what a syndrome would be. Um, but the but Again, the the reason that the child has this is because of the behaviors of the parent. The DSM is designed pretty much to identify, you know, axis one, axis two disorders that usually have some sort of basis in the person in it. It may be, there might be contributing factors to it, but like schizophrenia, for example, is something that's an axis one disorder. That's in the DSM because it's something... Organic, there's a genetic thing, you know, depression can be situationally caused, but at the same time, it could also have some biological basis. And so the way where parental alienation fits in is there's some V codes. And V codes are, are codes where um there are other kind of areas of clinical focus. And this is where it fits in. And there's one called, it's I think it's V Code 91 or something like that, where it's um. Child affected by parental relationship distress. And underneath that code, any child who witnesses violence, which we know is very devastating for children when they witness violence, whether it's violence between their parents or violence in their communities, that's very damaging to children. And there's a lot of scientific literature supporting that, and it affects them very negatively. So that falls underneath that that V code. Another one that falls underneath that V code is when they see parental kind of just conflict and fighting, not necessarily rising to the level of, you know, severe domestic violence, but that conflict is very stressful for children, especially, you know, when children are very young, their brains are developing. It's very bad for children to be exposed to that. Um, And then Dr. Bill Barnett published um, a paper where they expand even more Uh, on this child affected by parental relationship distress. And he co-authored it with two of the authors of the DSM, uh, where they really detail other ways that family conflict and parental stress affects children. And that's loyalty conflicts and parental alienation. So loyalty conflicts are different than parental alienation because it's where the child is trying to maintain a healthy relationship with both parents or a positive relationship with both parents. And the parents are trying to put the kid in the middle and pull them to their side, you know? So they're both engaging in bad behaviors and they're trying to use the kid as like a, you know, in-between point, you know, like, and the kid just feels stuck. That's a very different dynamic than parental alienation where the child aligns with one parent and then rejects the other one for reasons that are not legitimate. But in both of those cases, the child is embroiled in the conflict. And so it does fall under the DSM in that regard, but it's not meant to be something because it's the child's fault. And that's why it didn't get in there. And that's, that was the, the product of the work group. As they said, it just doesn't fit because it's not something that's inherent in the child, but it's a, it's a product of the parental conflict. So when people try to say, well, it didn't make it in there, so it's not valid, that's a complete mischaracterization of what happened. Uh, and so, so that is, that, that's kind of my, my position on that one. And that, that's something that if you ever have Dr. Burnett on your show, he can explain that more because he was involved with that whole process. But that's what happened. Um, so it is considered child abuse. You know, it's considered, and that has its own V code as well. Um, it's child psychological abuse to make a child feel that a parent doesn't love them. You don't have to call it parental alienating behaviors. It's just the behavior itself, making a child feel like a parent doesn't love you and that they abandoned you and that they are awful. And for a child who hears that a parent is dangerous and unsafe when they're not, that's half of their identity. so that child is starts to hate themselves too. So that's child's abuse. So you don't even have to call up parental alienation, like the behaviors themselves meet those definitions of child
0: abuse. Awesome. The next time someone mentions how parental alienation syndrome is not in DSM-5, I'm just going to ask them to listen to this episode. Now, how about the parents who claim that uh, once the child grows up, he or she will see that they were trying to protect the child? What is your reply to people who have that kind of uh, misconception?
1: I would say, well, where's your evidence? I mean, you know, I could tell you all the reasons why that's wrong using the evidence, but for somebody to continue to hold an opinion in the face of evidence and say, what's your citation? You know, who are you citing? Are you citing the people who are saying that and actually don't have their own citations either? (laughs) You know, people I see who say it's pseudoscientific are just citing other people who say it's pseudoscientific and they're not citing any actual research that says that it's, you know, like that shows, you know, how are they defining what science is? That's, that's even, you know, crazier. Especially, I find it interesting that a lot of lawyers give opinions on science when they're not scientists. I would never go give opinions on law. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go and try to pretend to be a lawyer at all. Um, yeah, Exactly. You know, because it does. I mean, to become a scientist, you don't. I mean, you know, and I, I run into this all the time, even on social media. They're like, "Well, you're." If I say, "Well, I research this," I research it too. Well, no, you research by looking up articles on Google or something like that. That's not the same as a scientist. You know, a scientist, you you have to go through very rigorous, long term training, like medicine, right? Where you learn to think like a scientist. You learn to think about how to entertain alternative hypotheses. You learn to understand how to use statistics to and other methods of inquiry to test your hypotheses and, and rule out ex- other explanations. You learn how to design your, your studies in a way that addresses limitations of all the different methods. Right? Um, that's a long process. And I have grad students who they're really smart. They've already gone through you know, all their undergrad and all the science courses that they took, and yet they still struggle with their master's degrees on getting it right, you know, and so as a mentor for my students, you know, I spend so much time helping them plan their analyses, plan their hypotheses, think through the logic behind, and all these assumptions that they have behind all the things that they test, and I do that with, you know, and then once they get their doctorate, let's that they have Reach the same level, even though it still takes many years to keep getting better at it, right? Um, but, you know, for people who kind of, you know, just teach a research methods class or have published one paper in a non-scientific journal and want to give an opinion on the science, it's just, it's, it's, it's very disappointing. I think to see that that's where, that's kind of where the field is. Um, in this, at least in this area, and it's, um, I hope that changes, and I hope there's other scientists who kind of step in and want to collaborate and want to do this work, um, but it's not easy work. You know, my grad students, I actually warn them, I'm like, okay, you might be attacked if you, <laughs> if you do this work, like, you have to really want to do it, because you, you have to really, you know, you're, you're, face, you're, you're faced with a lot of obstacles to do this research. And it makes it really hard. A lot of my colleagues say, "Why do you even study this if you're if you're constantly stressed out about people attacking your work?" And you know, but what's the alternative? Don't do it, and you know, let kids, you know, <laughs> let kids suffer, and let families, you know, not get closer to an answer of what's going on. I don't think that's a, an acceptable alternative.
0: Right. Right. Makes total sense. Now, we have been talking a lot about the research and the naysayers. Let's get into some practical parts where we can help those who are going through these situations. What is your best advice for those who are listening that have someone in their family or friend circle who are going through this? How can they do their best to help? Right. Um, Well, I think one important thing is when you see somebody going
1: through this, Don't try to jump into the blame game or tell them it's going to get better. (laughs) It may not get better. Um, A lot of times kids never snap out of it. They don't realize that they're been alienated and they don't reconcile. Um, We don't know what percentage of them do. I mean, some spontaneously figure it out, you know, and then they, when they get old enough, they, they get away from it. But so I think if you're a good friend or you're seeing it, um, you know, don't, Assume that that person's responsible for what's going on entirely until you know more, right? Um, Be a support because a lot of these parents who are dealing with this don't have any support because people don't believe them. They think that they must be doing something wrong to have their kids hate them so much. Um, I would offer, you know, one thing I think that was really useful for people I know that when they have their kids and the kids are, you know, really trying to come up with, you know, sometimes, sometimes kids get involved in the campaign with the alienator to try to, um, bust, you know, the parent, you know, and kind of, you know, catch them and make allegations of abuse that during their parenting time when nothing happened, you know, um, you know, be available like for holidays or other things to come over and hang out with the family to be somebody who's willing to be a witness (laughs) to say none of that happened. Right. Um, or to spend time with the family, to, to be there around when the kids are there, to, to, to give that side of the story as an outside person. Um, that's how you could be kind of more actively involved. Um, and correct parents. If you have a friend who's engaging in some behaviors, call them out on it. You know, I've I've had to do that with some of my friends saying no. <laughs> and then, you know, they say, well, they should have, they have my my son has a right to know what their dad's doing. No, they don't. And I explained to them very carefully why that's very damaging to the child to tell the truth to the kid. Well, no, it's, you know, or a lot of parents feel compelled to have to try to defend themselves and correct misperceptions of their child, uh, that their child has. And that's so important not to do. It's important to say, it's too bad that you've heard that. I'm really sorry you heard that. There's more to the story, but it's not okay for you, for me to tell you that. Right. You're not an adult. And this doesn't even involve you, even if you were an adult. <laughs> this is between your mom and I or something, you know, or whatever, or your dad and I. Um, it's so hard for parents to do that because you want to you want your kid to see you for, for, you know, like who you are, you know, and not not this devil, you know, that they've been portrayed to be. So I think to be a friend, to help you, to help other parents who are going through this, help them. You know, kind of know that they're not alone, that they can vent to you after the kids go home from their visits and are horrible to them. And, um, you know, just to kind of be a witness and supportive of them, I think, means the world to parents who are struggling with this. Um, Speaking up and, you know, when you notice parents doing something wrong or help them come up with other ways to cope with the situation better, I think is uh, also really useful.
0: How about the children who are going through this? How can we as family members or friends help them to see the bias in their thinking?
1: Well, um, the hard thing with, with children who have been alienated, especially when it's severe, is that, you know, it's even if you present to them that, oh, look how great your mom or dad is, right? You know, and oh, what a good parent you have. You try to tell them that. They're not going to hear it. you know, they 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 think that there must be something wrong with you. This is where it comes with this what they call the spread of animosity, where anybody who's associated with that parent, the child also hates because, you know, if that parent's so bad, then everybody who's associated with them must be bad, too, right? That's this cognitive dissonance that the kid struggles with. And so now, in milder, moderate levels, I think it could be very effective to be, not correct things never say anything bad about the alienating parent right because the child will defend them you know reflexively they, they don't they don't see anything wrong with that parent um and you got to realize that that kid has been the child has been influenced to feel like it's them against the world right you know it's the alienator and then the child and it's them against everybody else and so you don't want to push that because if you push it or get the child to to kind of you know, give you their reasons for things, they're just going to get defensive. So you don't want to do that. In fact, most clinicians I know who, when they come across a child who's been alienated and they start asking them questions and they start to sense that immediate, like there's like an immediate visceral pushback when they have to explain why they don't want to see a parent, then they stop because you can't keep pushing them because they're just going to take an even stronger position. (laughs) You know, like they just, they double down. Uh, And so you're not going to get anywhere that way. And so, but I think pointing out, you know, in mild and moderate cases, you know, just pointing out good things that, not over the top where the kid gets suspicious, but like where you're like, oh, what a nice thing your dad did. Or, you know, like, oh, that's awesome. Your mom did that. Or, you know, like point out good things. um, Remind them, oh, God, remember when we did this together? Or remember when your dad took you there? Or we all did this, you know, especially if you're a family friend. You know, you can say, oh, remember when we all went camping and try to just kind of refresh positive memories, you know, keep those at the front of the mind of the child. That'll help them, um, counteract and buffer the negativity that they're getting, um, and kind of prevent them from kind of going down this trail of saying nothing ever good happened, right, with this parent. But, um. You know, so I think I think doing those kinds of things will help, you know, um, you know, just kind of you know trying to remind them that, hey, look, you know and and showing that the parent does have friends, right you know like the other parent might say, they have no friends, or nobody likes them, nobody believes them. But I think <laughs> it does it symbolically, it does mean a lot. I think when kids see that, yeah, you do have the same set of family friends, and they all accept them, even when they kids act like jerks, they're not. <laughs> You know, which they do sometimes when they're being, you know, and they've been alienated. Because it's hard for them to reconcile, right, the struggles that the kids feel when they're, that transition, when they have to go over there and spend time and see that dad or mom is not the horrible person um, and have other people confirm that. But it goes against everything else that they're feeling. You know, it's a really tough position for the kid to be in. So it's just having tolerance and understanding of that not feel like you have to constantly correct it because you're just going to get defensiveness.
0: One of the main objectives of uh, Find My Parent is to help the alienated parent who got completely cut off from their children mainly because uh, the alienated uh, the alienating parent ran away to a different country and so on. Any thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, I don't know the prevalence but it is a commonly reported experience, you know, that a lot of parents, they that they the child is taken or abducted. Um, I've even learned recently in in Germany, there's there's even entire groups of mothers who pool together resources to hide the child from the father. <laughs> yeah, when there's a parent who's found to be alienating, um, the court you know determines that that's what's going on. Then they have entire groups of mothers and other groups who hide the child and they kind of keep them away from the father to prevent them from reconciling and other things. And they, they haven't been able to find that fathers are organized in that way. And I've heard similar stories about what's happening up in Canada. It's a very interesting kind of, you know, something I want to look into at some point, but yeah, there is this kind of desire to hide the child because, you know, these parents don't believe that they're alienating their children. They believe that the other parent's abusive, even though there's, you know, clearly in those cases, there's no evidence that abuse happened. And, you know, my research, when we looked at appellate cases um, in the paper that we, we, we published last month, um, in over half the cases, there weren't even any allegations of abuse where there was a finding of alienation. So you don't, you know, even though allegations of abuse are common, they don't happen in all alienation cases. So, in fact, not even half of them. So, you know, it's just, you know, even though it's a strategy that alienators use, they don't always use it. Um, And so, um, but yeah, there's entire, you know, groups I think of, you know, I've heard documented of people taking kids, leaving the country. Um, I know I've heard a lot here. I, you know, and I don't know if this is true. It might happen even maybe more in other parts of the world like like in Europe where the countries are closer together and things, you know. I, I hear more abduction here in the US where people leave the state, you know, they they go to a different part of the country or something. But um but yeah, there are a lot of examples where they leave the country too. But I don't know the prevalence. I mean, I don't so that would take a lot of money to study that well enough. <laughs> You'd have to do an international study on
0: that one. We have been talking about how people can help at the individual level. Now, how do you think community leaders, politicians, and even corporate leaders can help in eliminating parental alienation at at a bigger level?
1: Um, Well, it's interesting you raise that point because um, the paper that I was talking about before that Joan Meyer published with her research team has been used. At the end of her paper, she put out a call to action where she argued that oh, you know, we need to change child abuse laws to make parental alienation inadmissible or not even recognized and that any practitioner who talks about it or mentions it should lose their license or be sanctioned. So she went so far to say, yeah, her one study should be used to do that, which I think is very unethical (laughs) for a lot of reasons, Um, but it's being used all over the place. And in fact, at first I thought, oh, how is that possible? But I was started getting forwarded bills that were being argued in state legislatures or the you know the you know committees before they hit the floor where they were taking word for word pieces of her report to try to change child abuse laws um and so in this and now just this year um right or just the last couple months those bills have come out of committee and they're being heard in different forms all over the country Hawaii, they're changing definitions of, of domestic violence. Um, shared parenting laws out of Iowa, they're, they're doing stuff there. Maryland, they're trying to change the child abuse statute laws. Um, Florida is another place. The UK is being argued. Um, and it's it's really bad. Um, and I'm hoping, you know, and and I know in Spain they were successful. Because um, now I, I've heard, and I, I need to learn more, but one of the... ICSP members, International Council on Juvenile Parenting members, shared that they just passed a law saying that you can't even admit parental alienation into court, which is crazy because the courts courts always have to entertain scientific evidence, right? They always have to decide whether or not the evidence is 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 useful for a case, right? If there's clinical evidence or other things, they, they're always doing that, and and parental alienation is admissible; it does meet evidentiary standards. It has for a long time. Um, and so a lot of these groups have decided that because it has and the courts understand it or are starting to understand it and get a grasp of it, they thought they changed the laws instead. So then that way it can't even get into court. So that's, the, that's their strategy. And so, but this has been a long campaign. Very, I think it's very well orchestrated using Joan Meyer's research and others who not even their research, but their legal opinions, <laughs> and so, you know, you know, how do we come together to deal with that and educate and, and get the right information out when it's constantly suppressed? Like, oh, it's pseudoscientific. Well, even they say that, and they don't provide any support for it, but nobody questions it, right? And, and you know, it's just it's it's shocking to me. So, I actually emailed a few um, weeks ago. A couple of leaders. Um, so, for example, um, the National Parents Organization, the Parental Alienation Study Group, um, and a whole bunch of other folks who are kind of leaders in different areas of shared parenting and de- parental alienation. And and I said, look, we have a real problem because our science and stuff that we know is not getting communicated to the leaders who are handling this Um how do we do that? You know, how do we boil it down? Cause I mean, I'm a scientist, I'm not an advocate. I'm not a campaigner, right? I'm not, I'm not a lobbyist. Um, and there's other people who are much better at doing that. But at the same time, the people who do that don't understand the science to be able to, to, you know, boil it down. So we've worked on a few, we, we finished three pages. Like, so we, we created these like one page um, kind of documents that, that I have all the citations of the research, but we boil it down to like the key points that people can give to their legislators. So one of them is just called parental alienation is real. (laughs) And then we document kind of all the points about what is it? You know, it's real. What do we know about it? It's scientific. Another one is on parental alienation is family violence, um, where we talk about how is family violence and why and the scientific evidence that supports all of that. And then the last one that we finished recently was on myths and truths about parental alienation, where we say what the people out there are arguing, like parental alienation was created by a pedophile, right? Even then, you know, God, it's not like he's the only person who's ever studied this. You know what I mean? Like there's 35 years of research. Like, You know, it's just the ad hominem attacks that are made all the time, it's just to to get people to not listen, you know, it's, so we created these one pagers, we're about to, we're working on another one right now on shared parenting to address kind of the big roadblocks that keep coming up. And then, but it's just to educate in a very simple way to legislators with sound bites and things. And then what's really interesting is those, the three that we've made so far, um, other groups now have taken them and started creating bigger social media campaigns using that material, right? So, Before they didn't have that, right? Before they didn't have the research, you know, because a lot of the research is really unattainable for people because you have to pay to get it, you know, (laughs) like it's in journals that you can't access unless you're somebody like me at a university. So a group of us are doing that. We're trying to kind of boil down what are the key points that, what what do we know? I mean, we're not overstating what we know either, because as a scientist, I don't believe that we should ever do that um but what do we know and and here's the facts you know and here's the reference you can go and look you know you can go read this yourself if you want (laughs) um and so we're working on that I'm trying to now organize um as president of the ICSP now I want to have like a summit where we're going to pull together a bunch of people who are leaders in other groups and try to find ways that we can kind of you know Start to really promote the science in this area, the evidence based practices in this area, and be able to defend against the kinds of ad hominem attacks that we're dealing with, um, and better educate um, providers and legislators and stuff. So we're working on it, but I think we need to, I think we need lobbyists and we need campaigners to get involved (laughs) because. You know, I think we have a lot of people who are motivated to help, but there is urgency. I think a lot of people see the need for there to be stuff like that. But I'm hoping maybe you and your listeners will say this is an urgent time to do something, because if we don't, then laws are soon going to make it really hard for any protection to be available for families who are dealing with parental alienation. You won't be able to even talk about it in court. I mean, it's it's unbelievable that that's the trying to build a wall around the court so that you can't even do- talk about a, 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 a documented form of family violence. <laughs> it's just, yeah, you know, we really need support. I think at the minimum we need to pay someone to help manage the campaign. <laughs> hire a campaigner who can do this at a, at a global level, not just, you know, at the U S but somebody who can kind of manage this. Um,
0: You know, the studies that you mentioned and the cheat sheet that you created, where can people find it?
1: Parental alienation study group, um, PASG.info. If you go to www.pasg.info, we have them posted there. Um, we're creating more as we go. You know, like I mentioned, I think we're going to do an on unshared parenting. We're working on that right now. And um, I, today I just realized we need to do another one on just parental alienation and admissibility in court. Cause that's a new thing that they're trying to the decide. Uh, people are trying to say is courts have never recognized it, which is completely false. <laughs> in fact, it's, it's, I don't even know where they even come up with that. Um, so yeah, this is a start. I mean, every time we make one of these one pager, you can't put everything on a one-page, right? You know, so we just kind of picked some of the key things and then we'll keep updating it as it goes. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, but, yeah, and any other, anything else, like if advocates out there are saying, you know, God, I'm running into this as a problem, you know, is there any data or any, you know, stuff on that, then we can make a one-pager on it, you know? Um, and, you know, just... You know it's I think we're gonna do another one on severity of alienation and but severity is it's important to help educate people about but at the same time it's um not something that's as relevant to advocacy efforts right you know it's more the the efforts of trying to say look this is a real thing you know this isn't pseudoscientific and all that but it'd be good to have more information sheets on different parts of what it is and all that too. Um, I want to do another one on Uh, domestic violence um, and the parallels showing um, because I do there are a lot of folks who do study domestic violence and and recognize parental alienation and um, they're unfortunately attacked (laughs) for even recognizing alienation and so I want to kind of work with them on trying to build some alliances and bridges and trying to educate people about you know what this is you know and um You know, and and reach, you know, communities where they just don't know any different and they're just being kind of told one thing without any evidence to support that opinion. So,
0: yeah, recently I even read a report from an organization from UK that is trying to make sure that the parental alienation is included in the child abuse bill in UK. I'm sure you've heard about that report as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know in the UK right now they're trying to, um, Baroness Meyer is trying to change and add parental alienation to the child abuse statutes. Um, she's arguing her case on March 8th um, and uh, it's getting a lot of resistance, a lot of misinformation and a lot of, you know, People going back to the same old arguments like, oh, this is just something that a pedophile made up and, you know, just <laughs> and moms are losing custody to abusive fathers. And there's there's not evidence of that um, in my, you know, in when they're alienated, you know, courts are in, in our study, we found that, you know, you can't just go in and claim you're alienated and get your kids. <laughs> we don't find that, you know. Like it's hard enough to prove alienation and to get anybody to believe it, but we, you know, at the appellate level, that that's not what we see. Um, you do see, though, that when in a lot of when we compare cases where a custody evaluator or the court determined alienation had been going on, that those parents were more likely to lose parenting time or lose custody because they recognized that it was abusive, and they weren't handing kids over to people who were. Active abusers. <laughs> they weren't doing that. Um, you know, despite what what was said, you know, and so um, you know, the data, I mean, while it sure, I'm sure there's people who claim that they've been alienated when they haven't been, there's there's lots of them. But some of it's because people just don't understand what alienation is and they don't understand, they just think that if they can't talk to their kids because the other parent was unavailable for a couple of days, that doesn't mean that you're being alienated. Um, you know, but they say it, you know, or they say, you know, or you know, in a legitimate case where there's estrangement, you have some people where they'll say that they're being alienated even though it really is estrangement. But that's just misuse of the term. And it doesn't mean that alienation isn't real because somebody's misusing it. That's like, you know, somebody claiming that they've been a victim of domestic violence when they haven't been. You're not gonna go and say, oh, there's no such thing as domestic violence. It's completely illogical, right? So yeah, the domestic violence piece, you know, I think is important to clarify too, that people do misuse that and they do misuse parental alienation. We don't know how often that happens, but it what it means is that we should all be concerned about it. As somebody who's a victim of domestic violence myself, it really bothers me when people lie about abuse because it undermines protections for people who really are abused. It makes people not believe you when it actually did happen. And so when people are lying about it, that really, really bothers me, because it's a complete misuse of the system. And just like alienation, people lie about it, and under it makes it where everybody else who's, who is being alienated is not believed. So I think we should all be concerned about that because no matter who who's lying about what, it's a bad thing, right, for kids. So, um, so I think that is something that we should be most concerned about. Is getting and training professionals who understand and can screen for different kinds of alienation and different kinds of abuse effectively, get the the right kinds of intervention and treatment. And then we don't, you know, be able to tell if something's a a valid, you know, legitimate claim of abuse versus not. Um, So I think we're legitimate claim of alienation versus not. That's what we need, you know, that, and that will help protect families. Um, but we need to approach it as a united front saying we don't want family violence in general in all its forms. And, you know, I think there's just a lot of roadblocks in place to prevent us from getting there, which is really sad.
0: We also generally advocate co-parenting in this podcast. So do you have any thoughts on our, on how to go about it, what's the best way, to co-parent, and so on?
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think, well, in, in the context of parental alienation, um, it, it really depends on how severe it is, right? And how severe the behaviors are of the other parent. Um, like in mild cases where the parent maybe is inadvertently um, alienating the child, you know, like making the child feel guilty or sad whenever they express any favoritism or, you know, like for the other parent, but it's not severe undermining of the relationship. You can maybe co-parent, um, but with the, with the alienators who are a lot more active, I mean, you gotta realize that it's coercively controlling abuse and when you have a coercively controlling abusive person like a batterer we know from the domestic violence literature that you would not recommend mediation <laughs> you would not recommend co-parenting because that they're using the child and they're using that that excuse to communicate as a way to abuse and to continue controlling and so it's not recommended in those cases and so when you have an in Time and again, in the research, the, the literature that we, we've we seen with alienation cases, it's not effective to do mediation with these cases. It's not effective to co-parent when it's like moderate to severe because the other parent is using that relationship to get more and more control because that's what's motivating them is control and power, right? And so any chance that they have to try to get more of it is you know <laughs> they love that right and they love any engagement to continue the conflict and um and so what the the number one thing is to protect the child from that conflict anytime there's abuse you got to prevent the conflict shelter that kid from it and so parallel parenting plans are what's recommended in those situations
0: parallel parenting i've never heard of that particular word what does it mean and how to go about it
1: you both parent separately right the kid goes back and forth but You don't allow, like, you you prevent, like, you you separate out decision-making. So that way, one parent will be in charge of, you know, medical. Another one will be in charge of education, for example. And they're instructed to inform the other parent about things, but they don't need their approval for stuff because you want to have it where you're not having to negotiate because you can't negotiate with somebody who's abusive. So the idea is you split it up where the parent doesn't lose all their control or authority but you have it where that they can make decisions on their own without having to coordinate with the other parent you should still communicate but then you usually would have um, communication mediated you know through some electronic you know or have another person mediate the communication to cut down the conflict and the attacks you know um and then um, the kids kind of have to, you know, kind of go back and forth, but the, the, you separate out, you minimize as much contact, you know, you, you minimize the contact between the parents as much as possible. And, you know, it's not ideal. It's not, that's not definitely a solution you want to do when parents can get along and can move past it. But when you have violence or when you have a very aggressive, or, you know, kind of dynamic like with alienation, um, you, got to minimize the conflict you got to stop the abuse and when you're forcing a parent to have to communicate with somebody who is just attacking you left and right why would you do that to somebody (laughs) you know like but courts do it all the time well just get along you know just get along with them but they're not but because they're not recognizing that this parent is being abused by this other parent and they're using the kid to do it don't okay, care if you call it alienation or what it's it's domestic violence because they're they're just using the kid as an excuse to control them and to manipulate them and to you know hurt them and so if you're requiring that parent to have to communicate with them and to cooperate <laughs> you know it's it's bad for everybody you know so um so that's something whenever I do testimony in court I kind of have to explain that you know it's the power dynamic in this kind of abuse is, is similar to battery, you know, and, and so you don't think about when you're trying to come up with a parenting plan in a situation where you have a parent who's extremely abusive or has been, that's, you, you would not order, you know, <laughs> think about what you would order in that situation and that would be the parallel of what you would do in a parental alienation situation. So.
0: Now, I'm just curious on your thoughts about how do you identify that your future partner have a tendency to go into alienation and all that. I'm just wondering if there's a viable way to figure it out beforehand. I know that is a very weird thing to ask, but I'm just wondering if there is a way to avoid it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's
0: in general, like
1: how do you avoid getting into an abusive relationship? I mean, that's what it comes down to, right? Because that's what it is. Um, You know, I think one thing you can look at is, you know, what's, what's the person's relationships with their parents? Um, what's because we do know there is a ge- intergenerational issue, you know, so if they had been alienated or um, it happened in some part of their family, chances are that was role modeled for them and that they saw that as a, you know, an option that they would potentially, hopefully not, but could potentially relive in their relationship now. If that person has a lot of unresolved trauma from their own childhood, Like, let's say they were abused or something like that. Um, If that hasn't been addressed, it's going to cause problems in the relationship. And that is something that we see commonly among alienators who um, kind of go on and make lots of allegations of abuse and other things. Like they project onto the child their own, you know, like they try to protect their child from something that no one protected them from when they were little, right? And so they kind of make up, you know, or believe that things have happened when they didn't, you know, and that this is for some, not all alienators do this, but some do who just have a lot of unresolved issues of their own life that they haven't dealt with. And so I think when you're deciding to marry somebody or get into a relationship with someone, if that stuff hasn't happened yet, you may want to wait, you know, or you may want to, you know, say, (laughs) let's uh, let's work on this and see, you know, and just make sure that that won't get replayed because you, you don't even know if it would until you have kids, right? And then it might trigger lots of old memories, and feelings, and concerns that the person hasn't dealt with. Um, and then that could be really problematic for the marriage. And then if you, the marriage doesn't make it, problematic for the kid who's still in that dynamic. So, um, so those would be two things I would look at ahead of time. Um, when you're in it, if you realize that it might be happening, I, I've interviewed parents who haven't been able to leave the relationship because they know if they do, they'll never see their kids again. Um, But they're being alienated in their own house, right? (laughs) Like the kids won't spend any time with them. They won't talk to them. They curse at them. But if they leave, they know they'll never see them. Um, And I know that in some other countries, you know, where divorce isn't common, alienation is still there. Um, So it's, I mean, it doesn't have to happen after divorce. A lot of times happens beforehand, I mean, it's it's kind of like, I think, you know, the only suggestion is kind of document everything you can. Um, and, you know, when you try to get resources and then if you decide to leave the relationship, you know, you need to, you know, find ways to protect the children from that. Um, and that's, that's hard to do. You I know mean, I don't have any good advice on that other than you got to get as much information as you can. Otherwise people won't believe you. <laughs> so...
0: What are the best resources on parental alienation for those who want to get a deeper understanding on the issues that we are speaking about today?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think some of the books like uh, Dr. Warshock's book, Divorce Poison, um, Amy Baker, if you go to her website, she's got a lot of great books for parents and children um, to understand it. They're written for that population, you know, like for, for people who are struggling with it. I think those are good books to start. Um You know, and I think if you are somebody, you realize that you were part of the alienation. And I've interviewed um, a few parents who came to that realization. Um, I think it's important to understand that you still can play an important role in correcting it, even though you can't go back and fix the time and all that stuff. But you can be honest and, and tell your child that, look, I understand I did this and it was wrong. Your dad or mom really didn't do any of that, or they really weren't the bad person. I was hurting, right? I was upset. I didn't know how to cope with it. And I don't want you to live your your life um, feeling that way about them when it was wrong. And I shouldn't have led you to feel that way. I mean, it's a hard conversation to have, but it can correct, it can make, it can allow the child and give that adult child permission to reflect back and realize that maybe their perceptions were wrong because they have been influenced, but it takes that. Cause that, cause that even as an adult, that child still feels aligned and they'll feel like they're betraying them. If they go and try to establish a relationship with the other parent, I have, I even have friends who they realized they'd been alienated and they went to go visit the parent that left, you know, they left the country cause they just couldn't handle it anymore. And the, they felt really guilty about doing that because they felt like they were still betraying the the parent that, you know, even as an adult, they have freedom to go and do that, but they felt a like betrayal. So I think if you're a parent who comes to realize that you played a role in that, you know, to have that conversation, because then your, your child doesn't feel that guilt anymore, that like that sense of betrayal that they might feel when they just want to love both of their parents, you know, so it's never too late to do that as a parent. So I think that's really important to do.
0: Thank you so much for all the information and clarification and advice that you've been giving throughout this particular podcast episode. Uh, where do the listeners find out more information about you?
1: Um, for me, um, you know, I, I just have my own, my own website, Um, If you want to know more information about parental alienation, I think a good resource is that Parental Alienation Study Group. It's pasg.info. Parental Alienation Study Group does have a YouTube channel and they do have some, they, they post some of the um, conferences, um, recordings from conferences that you can watch. Um, there's like Stephen Miller's presenting, um, Dr. Lorandos, Amy Baker, there's some that I've presented. Um, so that's another, if you like watching videos, <laughs> Yeah, there's a, and you can actually see a video of um, Dr. Lorandos and I, just last month, we recorded a Interview with an attorney where we talk about our paper that we just published, where you know we it was an attempted replication of the Joan Meyer and team's study, so that that's posted up there too. So you're well, you know. So um, I think updates and other kinds of research um, parental alienation study group is a free. You can join for free. Um, anybody can be a member, and they put out a newsletter, and they put out in the newsletter. There's updates on new research and other things. So that's a useful, I think, place for parents um, to get more information.
0: Thank you, Dr. Aman, for the awesome podcast interview. I know that our listeners have learned a lot from this conversation. Please check out the show notes uh, to see all the resources, books, and sites that were mentioned throughout this episode. I would like to remind everyone that our goal here is to share knowledge with you guys and show that you are not alone in this. With that said, if you need specific legal advice, please get independent advice from a qualified legal practitioner. If you are a minor or if you happen to have difficulty in understanding certain parts of within this episode, please approach a responsible adult or someone knowledgeable and ask them for clarifications. We have done our best to make sure that it doesn't offend anyone and if you have further questions or comments regarding Find My Parent or the interview, you can always uh, mail us at sk at findmyparent.org. If you're someone who got separated from your own parent and would like to find your parent again, please go to findmyparent.org and fill out your details. With the help of our smart algorithms and matching technology, we hope to help you find your alienated parent again. If you're part of an NGO or even a private company passionate about this topic, please reach out through the contact us page in findmyparent.org and we hope to work together with you. Alright folks, that's it for this week and speak to you next week. Take care till then.